Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a great break. I wanted to let you know about something that I've been talking a lot about on social media at Zibby Owens, which is the hashtag 22 and 22 challenge. We are... At Zibby Books, we are encouraging everybody, like all of you, to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. And we're going to provide a whole series of incentives for every five visits, and you'll be entered to win a $500 shopping spree, and you'll get fun things like bookmarks and all the rest. Plus, you'll be part of a great community of people all helping support bookstores, authors, and more. We're really, really excited about it. If you want to join, sign up. You just go to 22in22.net. That's 22in22.net and click I'm in and put your information. And then every time you go to a bookstore, you just quickly go back on the site and click log a bookstore visit. And then we'll be keeping track and we'll be following up with all of your different achievements and awards and everything. So please sign up, spread the word, 22 and 22, get your friends to join and start visiting bookstores and it'll be really fun and exciting. So here's to a wonderful 2022. I'm so excited that you're listening to my podcast and doing all the fun things that I have been trying to bring into the world. So here we go, 2022, hashtag 22 and 22. Erica C. Barnett is the author of Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. And I definitely talked a bit too much about myself in this episode, so forgive me. Erica C. Barnett is an award-winning political reporter. She started her career at the Texas Observer and went on to work as a reporter and news editor for the Austin Chronicle, Seattle Weekly, and The Stranger. She now covers addiction, housing, poverty, and drug policy at her blog, The Sea is for Crank. She has written for a variety of local and national publications, including the Huffington Post, Seattle Magazine, and Grist. Welcome, Erica. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Okay, your memoir. Let's discuss. Quitter. <laughs> tell, okay, first of all, tell listeners what your memoir is about. The full subtitle, because I'm afraid I'm going to get it wrong because I don't have it in front of me now that I've been displaced into this other room. <laughs> so yeah, tell, tell us everything. 
Sure. Yeah. It's, it's called Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. And it's sort of in the tradition of quitlet, which is, you know, the genre of books that are about quitting. In my case, alcohol. I quit drinking um, a little under seven years ago as we're recording this. And uh, But the book is, is really primarily about my experience of relapse in the process of recovery and the process of trying to quit drinking. I wrote it, you know, because as I was trying to get sober and as I was, you know, failing and failing again and again, I became really, really obsessed with reading uh, Quitlet books. There's tons of great books out there. A friend of mine, Sarah Heppola, uh, wrote a book called Blackout. There's just, you know, any number of books by women. Carolyn Knapp's Drinking a Love Story is a classic. Like one of my favorite books of all time. Yeah. And so I read those obsessively over and over and over again. And and just thinking like, why can't I get it? Why can't I get it? These women got it. And I read a lot of men's books too and, and sort of related to those stories a little more because they were a little more in line with the way that I drank, which is constantly from like from the second I woke up to the second I passed out at night. And but the but the thing that I sort of noticed in in the vast majority of those books is they didn't talk about relapse. They talked about sort of getting worse and drinking more and hitting rock bottom and something really, you know, usually pretty dramatic happening. Not in all cases, but something happened where they just said, I'm done. And then they were done. And I didn't understand why that didn't happen for me, since that's the story and that's what's supposed to happen. And then, you know, I started trying to get sober. I started getting a little more serious about it and going to AA meetings, to other types of, you know, group meetings, to therapy, you know, all these different things that I describe in the book. And I realized that actually, you know, just anecdotally, and as it turns out, you know, in reality, most people actually do relapse um, at least once and often quite a number of times before they finally are able to quit or reduce their drinking or whatever, you know, sort of recovery looks like for them. And, you know, that gave me a lot of hope because it made me realize that I wasn't failing every single time that I, you know, quote unquote, failed to stop drinking and and picked up again. And I really wanted to, so getting back to the memoir, I really wanted to tell that story because for me, you know, if I had, if I had known (laughs) that it was actually normal and that I wasn't insane and that I wasn't just an utter failure, I think it might have been a little easier for me and it wouldn't have taken as many years because it took about six years of pretty solidly trying before I finally was able to quit in February of 2015. Wow. Well, the way you write about it is so really just you're in it with you, right? You're in the moment, you're in the liquor store, you're in your office, like packing up. I mean, that scene that you, when you, the people tried, your coworkers tried to get you into treatment and then you went, but it was not successful. And you showed back up to get your belongings and, you know, the people who you thought were your allies were not, which often happens in all of these types of stories, right? People have a limit that they're willing to like sort of go to. But I have to say, like, as you're going home and waking up and bleeding and, you know, all this stuff, like I was in it every second. Like you just take the reader right in. You're a really great writer. I guess I should have just said that. You're a great writer. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I mean, and I think like, you know, one response that I've gotten, which has been, you know, to me, it's actually a great compliment, even if people don't always mean it this way, is that I come across as really unlikable in the book. (laughs) And I think, you know, and people tell me that and, and I get, you know, people saying, you know, you're really, I really can't sympathize with this person because of course, like, I read the Amazon reviews because I 
am, you know, an online person and I just can't, I'm on Twitter all the time. I can't help but see, you know, what, how people are reacting. And when people say that, I mean, that's, that, that was my intent. I was really unlikable and most people didn't like me, (laughs) you know? And I mean, even my best friend couldn't stand me. And so, and my parents couldn't stand me and nobody could stand me because I was like, I was becoming an unlikable person or I was an unlikable person. And, you know, when I, when I read back and sort of even think about it now, first of all, it's a long time ago at this point, And it feels like a different person living a different life, quite frankly. Like when I, when I read about that, I'm like, who the hell is this girl? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and second, you know, I don't like that, that person and I'm frustrated with her. And I'm like, well, girl, why can't you get it? Because, you know, when you're sort of on the outside looking in at addiction or just at any sort of compulsive behavior that someone is engaging with that's maladaptive, you're like, why don't you just stop doing that thing that's maladaptive and do the thing that is, you know, better for you? And and the, that that is the nature of addiction. I mean, it's, you know, or any, you know, sort of mental illness, it's, it's not entirely within your control. I mean, ultimately, you are the only person who can sort of take the steps that are necessary to pull yourself out of that. But it's just, it's not as simple as stop doing the bad thing and do the good thing. I mean, I feel like I have not to compare what like I have the same thing with eating. You know, it's so much easier people saying I have a drinking problem. I like I feel like I have an eating problem. Like I'm just, you know, something I struggled with my entire life. And I just like can't get a handle on it. And I keep trying new things, like what you're saying. Like you try to quit and try to like no sugar and no this. You know, it's a whole like diet culture really, but it's it then it haunts you because I'm like, look at everybody else. They don't have a problem. Look at them. They're like obviously not struggling with their eating. And why am I struggling? And how old do I have to get before this freaking ends? Do you know what I mean? I'm already 45 years old. So anyway, I understand sort of this having this issue that like, you know, not to again, not to compare your alcoholism and whatever, but just no, that, just I think that. they are very comparable. I mean, I, I do the reason I say like addiction or a compulsion or like yeah. a mental disorder or a you know, maladaptive behavior. I, I do think they're all the same. And I think there's addictions. I mean, there are all different kinds of addictions and there's behavioral addictions too that aren't like, you know, chemical necessarily to the extent that alcoholism is or, you know, or a heroin addiction is. But man, I mean, I talk in the book about like from the time I was, I don't know, I don't think I, I spell this out this explicitly, but I think I was like eight when I started exercising with my mom. And, you know, and like paying attention to what I ate and, you know, and even now, like if you, if you look, I mean, I've tried to sort of channel that behavior into more productive areas of my life, but like, you know, I own a business. My new year's resolution is to not work on Saturdays this year. Not, not, not Sundays. Cause I'm going to keep working on Sundays. I'm going to keep working six days a week, you know, but like, I have like, you know, to-do lists every day. And I'm just like, meticulous about that stuff. And like, it's all the same behavior. You know, I think like sort of being a quote unquote control freak can play into being an an alcoholic. It can play into having an eating disorder. You know, it can play into like wanting to work a minimum of 60, 70 hours a week. I think they're, they're all the same kind of behavioral compulsions. And And I'm saying this, this is just based on my own experience and observation. I'm not a scientist, but this is this is just, you know, what I've observed of my own behavior and then the many, many, many people I've met in recovery who, you know, have to kind of fight against other kind of addictions. I mean, gambling addiction, mm-hmm. again, anecdotally seems really common as a secondary addiction among people who've quit drinking or doing drugs. 
you know, look at people who smoke <laughs> compulsively. You know, a lot of people start smoking in rehab. <laughs> so it's, I, I think it's all kind of, kind of comes from this, the, the same impulse toward control. Although, of course, like paradoxically with addiction, you lose all control ultimately. Totally. Wow. I feel like now I'm going to have a little bit of therapy here. <laughs> this is like <laughs> introspection to anybody who struggles with stuff. Yeah, I know. I think that's the hardest part too for people who like to control. And by the way, like my new year's resolution was not to work before nine. Right. Cause it usually, wow. <laughs> See, exactly. Yeah, I'm like I mean, blushing it's as thing. I say this, like, <laughs> I'm not going to work before I drop the kids at school. Like I'm not, I'm not going to post, I'm not going to check email except for like the school, you know, and even that's been hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and sometimes those things work. Like I just let, Last year, my New Year's resolution was I'm not going to look at Twitter for more than five minutes a day. And I actually stuck to that, <laughs> which was really hard for me because I was I was getting a little compulsive about it. And I just realized, like, this is just feeding, like, negative energy into my brain first thing in the morning every single day. So, you know, it, it, it's it's I think it's achievable. Before No work before nine is achievable. And <laughs> me not working on Saturday is achievable. We can do it. Yeah. Saturday. I don't know that I, I don't know. I know. Um, have you read, <laughs> have you read Tiffany Schlain's book uh, called 24 six? It's all about taking a tech Shabbat. So her whole no. family, they apply sort of the wisdom of the Jewish tradition of Shabbat to technology. And so every Saturday, starting Friday night till Saturday sundown, nobody in the family uses technology at all. So, which obviously cuts out. That's amazing. Work. And she says she's been doing it for I don't know, 10 years now, something crazy. And it's like the best part of their week and everything. And I've talked to her many times about this at this point. And I'm every time I talk to her, I'm like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. And, you know, it's really hard. I don't know who's worse at this point. The kids are me, but it's hard. Well, where do you, do you think that it all, do you think anxiety plays a role with do you think there's like sort of comorbidity in that? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I talk in the book about, you know, sort of having this incredibly anxious personality from the time I was very, very young. I had insomnia from the time I was about, you know, seven or eight years old. I'm an only child. And I think that, you know, my family really piled onto me this notion that, and, and I think, you know, mostly to the good, but this idea that like, I was going to be a super achiever. You know, my, my grandparents, my granddad was the first in my family to go to college. My grandmother did not go to college and both my parents did. But like the expectation was like, you're going to go to medical school, <laughs> you know, or you're going to do something amazing with your life, whatever it is. And you're going to get straight A's and, you know, on and on and on. And so I was sort of primed to be a super achiever. And, uh, and that causes a lot of anxiety. And I started drinking, I think, you know, to sort of deal with social anxiety, which I think is really common just among people in general. But, you know, it, it just became sort of a, a tool for, you know, I don't even want to say a crutch because it was a tool for dealing with anxiety of every kind. You know, it's alcohol, alcohol is a depressant. It kind of shuts down some of your higher cognitive functions, including the sort of hamster wheel in your brain, or at least there's a hamster wheel in my brain that I'm mean, just constantly reminding me of like everything I'm not doing. Yeah. Like at every moment, you know, <laughs> and like it's, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing enough, you're disappointing this person, you didn't respond to this email. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, tool, or it was a tool for me to kind of shut that up for a little while. Ultimately, as I said, it's a very maladaptive tool for me personally, and there are lots of better ways. You know, I got really into cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think is just 
an amazing tool for people with anxiety, who, especially those who also like to write. But yeah, it's, you know, it, it, anxiety and addiction, I think, go hand in hand just as much as like depression and addiction do. I want to do a survey of authors to find out what percent have anxiety issues. Cause I really feel like it's like 90%. I feel like there's also something with writing through it too, which helps the anxiety or sort of setting it to paper or I don't know, but yeah. I, I just keep finding this over and over again, the same sort of themes and struggles and all of that. Yeah. I, I would say I don't, I'm not one of those writers who loves to write. I love having written, you know, and it's it's kind of like I discovered this when I started during the pandemic. I started running in part to you know deal with stress and in part because I couldn't go to the gym and and it was kind of the same thing. Like I I hate running and I kind of hate writing and and I just in my professional life I'm a I'm a political writer and I you know I'm a reporter and cover lo- local news and politics and and I'm always I love the feeling of being done with something. It's just it's the greatest feeling in the world. But the process of writing it, I mean you know. 80% of the time kind of sucks. <laughs> so it's it's just the, but it's the feeling of like, oh my gosh, I did that and it's done and now I can put it out in the world and I don't have to, you know, it's not going to burden me anymore. I think that's how I write through anxiety. Do you put things on a to-do list that you've done just so you can cross them out? Yes. <laughs> and you know, it's funny when I was, when I was first getting sober, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is not funny, but sad. I kind of can't tell the difference anymore, but like, when I was when I was first just kind of coming out of the the last place that I went, which was a detox facility, and like and just trying to even sort of deal with thinking about the wreckage of my life, you know, I had I had tens of thousands of dollars in debt. I had tons of people who I needed to you know apologize to and make amends to. Nobody trusted me, you know. I it, and I didn't have a job. I didn't know how to get a job. You know, my rent wasn't paid. I would do to do lists that were like brush teeth. <laughs> you know, take a shower, go outside and get the mail, you know, and it like, it really started from there, just kind of feeling like, okay, I'm doing the basics of my life. And and now, of course, like it's spun out into just like, I, you know, t- today I wrote down prep for this podcast. And I was like, yep, I already did that yesterday. Check. <laughs> I do that. I do that too. That's why I asked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can see that list getting smaller and it really, it gives me like that little dopamine rush of like, I'm, I'm actually doing things. I mean, yeah, it's definitely, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty healthy coping me- mechanism for anxiety, but you know, I don't know what my therapist would say about that. <laughs> Sounds like you have a pretty good therapist. <laughs> I do actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should get her on. <laughs> I should do it like a sideshow of like all the writers and authors, therapists, authors, therapists. Oh my gosh. I mean, they probably, they wouldn't be able to say anything, but it would be so funny. Maybe one special episode or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So what was it like then sort of reliving these moments, especially the unsavory ones that like, you know, you didn't feel as proud of. And when you felt your most unlikable and sort of vulnerable, that what was it like writing through it? And then now that it's out, like, do you have any regrets or do you feel exposed? I know you're talking about people who don't like it, which, you know, you can't please everybody. And, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't buy into that. Like, forget it. That's yeah. not your people. That's okay. You know, but. losing it. Okay. We can't 
bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe. But we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. I don't have any regrets. I mean, the, the, thing, about, the thing about writing through it is, you know, I, I don't think I could have written it right after I, you know, right as I was coming out of the whole story. And it, I mean, not that the story is over, but right as I was sort of coming out of the part that I write about in the book, I just, I wasn't ready and I had to process it. And I had to do all that, you know, all those amends um, to people and sort of like paying back my debts and just, just taking care of life, you know, getting a job, getting a new apartment. I mean, all those things that, that were really hard in the moment. And once I had done that and once I had kind of processed it and, you know, I went to a lot of AA meetings, which is like, nothing but i mean it's it's basically cognitive behavioral therapy by non-professionals <laughs> over a very long period of time where you repeat the same stories over and over again and like once just to start in sort of telling your story in that that context it loses its power to hurt you i think and so by the time i wrote the book i felt pretty comfortable talking about it and i was sort of not dissociated from it but i was distant enough that i could be a little dispassionate and then the the you know i don't have any regrets about the way that i wrote about it. I guess my only, the only thing about writing a memoir about kind of what I've learned from my experience is that, you know, once you've written it, it's done. And I've continued to learn. And I've actually continued to sort of change my thinking about addiction and about, you know, my own experience and the people in my life and how they reacted. And, you know, so life goes on and you evolve and you have different perspectives on things based on your experience. And yet, you know, it's all just kind of set in stone in this one moment when you, you know, sent the book off to your publisher. So that's just sort of the nature of memoir. Maybe I should write another one. <laughs> but but I, I, I'm I'm proud of, you know, the way that I that I set out the story. There there was, you know, you mentioned the the people at my work who I thought were my allies. It's um one of those people I, I actually do think that the people who were at my work and who I talk about, I think in the very first scene of the first chapter, taking me to, to rehab and and then when I got back, firing me or sort of orchestrating 
my firing. I think they actually were my allies, just not in the way that I wanted them to be <laughs> at, at the moment. And I got, was contacted by one of the people, one of the two women publisher of the magazine where I worked that I got fired from. And, and she was really mad at me. And, you know, she was like, you, you know, really make me look horrible. And it's like, I was trying to help you. And, and so I do, I do sort of regret that, you know, if anybody read it that way, because I was sort of trying to paint myself as the villain in that scenario and in a lot of the scenarios in the book, because my behavior, you know, I want people to come away thinking that, you know, I am, was a hard person to like. And so to the extent that, like, that people would read it and think and sympathize with my point of view when it's a distorted sort of addiction-oriented point of view, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want people to come away with that impression, but I can't really control that either. What I say to my kids is it's not that people don't like you or it's not that I don't like you. It's that it's your behavior, right? So right. your behavior may have been unlikable, but that doesn't mean people totally gave up on you. I mean, did they? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's that's kind of the amazing thing. I mean, one of, um, one of the things they say in AA all the time that I, you know, I don't think is a very good bit of blanket advice is, you know, you need, you're gonna have to get all new friends and, you know, and, and get rid of everybody from your old life. And, you know, in certain circumstances, you know, and maybe like when AA was being founded in the 1930s, you know, around men who would go out and drink with each other, like maybe that was true. But one of the amazing things about my story is that every single person who was there with me at the beginning of it, when I, you know, when I sort of first started going down that path of addiction, they all came back and they're all still here. I mean, a lot of them didn't go away. You know, my my best friend, Josh, who was kind of, you know, I was telling him the other day, he's, he said, oh, I just read the section about me again. And I was like, what are you talking about? The whole book is about you. <laughs> he never left. I mean, you know, he got very, very frustrated with me. But, you know, I mean, he's still my best friend. And so I was very, very lucky. And I also was very determined to sort of mend those relationships. I mean, it, it takes a lot of work. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, despite having kind of a dramatic story, I was really lucky at the, at the um, you know, the kind of end of the book and still have all my great friends. And we're much, and we have much stronger relationships too, because they're based in, you know, a foundation of a lot more honesty. Are you afraid now that you've have this whole book that came out and have sort of said that you're like in a good place? Like, are you afraid secretly that maybe you're going to relapse again? And what, what would happen then? Like, do you fear that? I mean, you know, it's, I think I did at first because I, I thought, oh my gosh, like I'm jinxing, I'm jinxing right, things yeah. by putting this out in the world. But I think, you know, I mean, first of all, if I relapse, it's not going to be because I said that I am no, no, a no. person who relapses. You know, I'm just sort of thinking, I'm talking back to my own like sort of self-talk, which is like, oh no, you said things are good. So things are going to be bad because that's how my self-talk works. But I think, you know, I think if I relapse, which at this point, you know, I'm seven years in, you're considered to be in remission after about five years. So the odds of drinking now are about the same as somebody who has never taken a drink before. Now, I'm not saying that that is, those are just statistics that has, you know, nothing to do with me in particular, but I think I have tools and I think like I know what to do and I think I know what, what steps I would need to take at that point sort of learning that relapse isn't the end of most people's story and that, you know, you can actually recover after relapse may, I think, gives me a lot more confidence in the fact that if I do relapse, that isn't necessarily, you know, the end of the story or the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody, which is definitely what I thought when I was trying to quit and relapsing. You know, I just, I felt like a failure. And, and in fact, I was just, I was typical. Well, I think, you know, 
the, the journey, so to speak, is never over for, for really anybody. And if it's not that, you know, it, it's, I think you're so right. It's just sort of managing the impetus for all of that behavior, right? Managing what comes underneath or managing the temptation or managing, I don't know, something deeper than just the behavioral part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's like anything, I mean, like we were talking about, you know, eating disorders or compulsions or, you know, gambling addiction or anything. I mean, you just have to, you just have to keep trying because I mean, it's not like, it's not like if I work on a Saturday or if I do something that I said that I was not going to do, like, I'm just like, okay, well, I guess I just work on Saturdays now. I mean, you know, of course not. I sort of say, okay, that was a setback. And I try to respond to it in, you know, in the way that I know how. And, you know, at this point, I mean, I talk in the book about all the the many, many things that I tried. And I think that all of them were effective in some way. I think AA was probably the most helpful for me just because I'm a person who really kind of needed that structure and needed to be able to talk to people um, because I was really isolated. So I think that like, you know, once you know the tools, you can go back to the tools. And that's that's kind of that's true for addiction and it's true for, you know, any number of behaviors. And so so that's what I would hope that I would do. I mean, and that's what I encourage people to do when, you know, I, I get contacted by people from all over the world and certainly all over the country, you know, saying, hey, you know, I read your book and I, I'm struggling and I keep relapsing. And it's like, you know, the only advice I can give is like, you're not a failure. Just keep going back to the tools that you know and keep going back to the tools that worked for you the first time and they will work again. You just have to keep trying. Yeah. It's that black and white thinking, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like even I've been trying to go on this new health kick or whatever to be healthy. And anyway, I like was with my mother who, well, we won't go. That's like a whole nother podcast, but anyway, we were together over New Year's and I started eating this piece of cake and I was like, it's okay. I'm going to allow myself like two treats a week or whatever. And I started eating the cake. And then of course I couldn't stop because the sugar was like, whoosh, you know, so then I started eating and eating. And then next thing you know, I'm like eating off someone else's plate. And next thing you know, I'm like, don't, that's like halfway in the garbage, you know? And I'm like, well, I'll just finish that scrap in the garbage. Well, you know, and then I said to my mom, I was like, I've ruined it. Like it's over again. I thought this time it would work. And she's like, it's never going to be over or not over. This is your life. Like it's just a day. It's just a meal. Like you pick up it tomorrow is another day. Like, don't Mm -hmm. worry about it. And I feel like that voice, like it would be nice if we all could have that voice in our own heads. Right. (laughs) Yeah. We're also harsh on ourselves for the tiniest missteps. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. massively, you know, extrapolating here, which I probably shouldn't, but you know, it seems very black or white. I'm I've relapsed. I haven't. And maybe in alcoholism, it's, it is more black and white, but maybe one drink instead of, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be okay with just this or maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and like for me, you know, I'm a person that I, I, the way that I historically drink and I think would continue to drink is like, is I can't have just one drink, Mm -hmm. but I probably, you know, I probably could tell myself that. And, you know, and then I think I would, I would sort of be on the spiral, but I also think that like, there is a, there's a spectrum of relapse and, and, you know, some people refer to it as a slip, like when you just have one drink and then you are like, whoa, I can't, you know, I can't be doing that. And tomorrow's another day and you start over. I think that there's like, there is sort of all or nothing thinking among some circles in the recovery world where like you go back to day zero and you start all over and that's, you know, like you've, you've done it now. Like you have to, you, you may have had 10 and a half years, but now you're back at day zero and you're crawling back. And I think that's really, really not helpful and, and counterproductive and it keeps people away. So I, I kind of 
prefer to to think to to encourage people and to encourage myself to be you know gentle on myself because like I wouldn't talk the way that I talk to myself you know to a friend I mean ever yeah I wouldn't have any friends (laughs) 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 so I think that's I think that's just that's a really important thing that you know I try to kind of you know when people ask me and they they do ask me a fair amount you know it's just to be gentle on yourself with whatever it is that you're trying to change in your life because you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a sprint. Very true. And I, I don't know if this applies or not for me, when I'm trying to like, you know, just be more mindful of food and not wanting to eat dessert, like every second, you know, I'm like, okay, this is a craving. This is a feeling and like, this is a feeling that is going to pass and I'm going to ride out this feeling and I'm going to walk in the other room and like, slowly it's going to go away and it's not going to be as hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like acknowledging and it's like, yeah, feelings are one thing. They're like one piece of your brain. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm talking about myself so much. I really apologize. That's okay. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it's all, I think it's all related and like, and I think, I mean, this is, it's, it's funny. Like I, I actually, you know, sometimes I mentioned that AA is is a lot like cognitive behavioral therapy and like, I, I, you know, you learn the 12 steps in AA and, and, and you sort of you do what's called working a program, which is, you know, you sort of try to apply tools that you've learned to like every part of your life. And I often sort of say that to friends who are not in recovery and who don't, you know, necessarily have the addictive type issues, you know, I wish, I feel, I feel bad for you that you don't have a program because <laughs> like, because having those tools is so useful and like whether it comes from therapy or a, or a recovery group or whatever, it is so useful to be able to just kind of talk back to your thoughts in that way. And that's just, that's one of the things that we learn, you know, in, in recovery circles is like, this is, you know, like you said, this is just a feeling. This will pass. Live for today, you know, one day at a time, et cetera, et cetera. All those cliches. And I talk in the book about how they are really annoying at first and then something changes and they start to seem like wisdom. I think about that stuff all the time, you know, to this day. I mean, I think, you know, this too shall pass, you know, one day at a time. All that all that stuff that just seems so stupid and like like a dumb little slogan on a wall. Like it is, it is incredibly useful in the moment. I agree. Very true. Okay. Well, having written a a memoir, even though you don't like to write, what advice would you give (laughs) to aspiring authors? You know, I think that the reason I was able to, to write this particular memoir, you know, I'd never written a book before is because I, I had an idea of what it wanted, what I wanted it to be and what I wanted to say. I I think that if you're going to be like, I mean, in very practical terms, if you're going to be pitching a book, I think outlining it is really an important, you know, an important first step. And I sat down and I wrote an outline and I wrote a pitch and I did the whole thing like in a weekend. And I'm not, you know, again, this is like my sort of compulsive work behavior. I wrote 50 pages in a weekend. I don't recommend doing that. But I think, you know, it's really important to have a theme and an idea of what it is that you want to say in the book. And I'm, I'm speaking about memoir and, and nonfiction because that's kind of my area of expertise, I guess. But I also think, you know, I'm ordinarily a, uh, you know, a magazine or, a, you know, I come out of the alternative weekly newspaper magazine world. Now I write a website and the pieces I write are usually between, you know, a thousand and maybe 3000 words. So a book is, you know, my first draft, it was something like 120,000 words. And 
initially, like that, that number of words just seemed so daunting that I couldn't imagine putting anything on the page. And so again, like I used that outline and I broke it down and I just thought, okay, you know, this is not, this is not a book. This is a series of stories that will proceed in a more or less chronological order <laughs> toward, toward, you know, from the past toward the present. And I broke it down into chunks and, and you'll, in the book has a lot of chapters, you know, it could have had 10 chapters, but it has many more than that. And that in part is just because my writing practice, it was more effective for me to write it in small chunks and to think of it as small chunks rather than like this mountain that I had to climb. And then eventually, you know, I got to 120,000 words. My editor said, this is way too long. (laughs) And um, and we ended up cutting about 20, 25,000 words out of it, which was great. (laughs) I love that process and I love editors and Thank God for editors. I'm. I also am an editor myself, but you know I can't edit myself. So I was. I was really, really grateful to have this amazing editor who was willing to work with me and just just kind of cut mercilessly. But I think the biggest thing is just like don't don't think of it as a mountain you have to climb. Think of it as like a series of you know discrete plateaus that you have to reach. I love that. I actually I just wrote a memoir that's coming out this summer. And in July, and I did this exact same thing. I was like, I can't do this. It's too long. What am I going to do? And then I was like, I'm going to write a series of scenes and yep. each scene, I'll just write a scene at a time. And then each scene will, will link them all together. And anyway. And, yeah. it, and it actually, it like, for me, it was, it was weird. And once I started doing that, it just sort of proceeded like magic. Like, yeah, me too. They, they it was just, like, boom, boom, boom. Just, yeah. Yeah. And you think it's not going to work, but then it does. And yeah, it's just, it was, it was a really amazing process. I mean, it took way longer than, anything I'd ever written took. But yeah, it was, it was not, you know, people are often ask like, is, you know, was it, wasn't it really hard to write a book? And it really, I mean, it wasn't any harder than the rest of the writing I do. And, uh, and I actually, once I kind of, once I kind of set myself to it and put myself in the mindset of like not being a news writer, but being a memoir writer, it actually was really, really fun to kind of play with, you know, the way that I, that I wrote and to write in a way that I don't usually, because I'm usually very straightforward, kind of just the facts sort of writer. So I didn't have to do that with this, which is really fun. Awesome. Well, this is great. I feel like I have someone I like share a brain with in in part here. (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, I, I just, I don't know, so many of the same coping habits. Anyway, it's, it's nice to see it reflected. Awesome. Yeah. Likewise. This this has been really fun. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on. And I will think of you as I don't work in the mornings and I will think of you on Saturdays. Awesome. (laughs) And yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Good to know you. Thanks, Ivy. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 